Okay, well, hey, so, uh, so whimsical, so nonsensical, but who says we can't have fun in church? This is church. How are you? Okay, awesome. The best part is watching your faces. Watch that. That's, it's really fun from up, up here. Hey, I want to take you into the Wayback Machine, circa like 1999 or something like the 1900s. I'm going to take you all the way back to the 1900s. I'm a single man. I'm living here in Kansas City. I have a friend. She is a female. She lives up in a northern state here in our country, and she calls me up because we would call people back then. She calls me up and she says, hey, I have this wedding I need to attend in Iowa. That's near you, right? And I said, yes, it is. This is what I said. And uh, did I like this girl? I don't know. It was just, it sounded kind of fun. So I go up there and, you know, we do the wedding. I'm meeting her friends. Well, I'm eating the wedding cake. And then I'm on the dance floor dancing when um, one of her friends, we'll call her Molly, but one of her friends, let's call him Steve, and Steve, who I think has been consuming some liquid courage by this point in the evening, he kind of grabs my arm and he says, hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you, you got a problem with this, man? I mean, come on. It's like, come on. Was, did that move just offend you? I don't know. Like, he's like, no, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm, I, 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 I don't know. Like, it just, three times. What are you doing here? And sometimes we're asked a question that we need to just sit with. Sit with like a Russian nesting doll, a babushka doll. It goes by sometimes. And this is not just any babushka doll. This is the 2015 World Series uh, Royals Championship babushka doll. Let me just explain this to you. Do a little Royals trivia here for a moment. Uh, the shortstop for the 2015 Royals was Alcides Escobar. Very, very good. Our, uh, our center fielder. Lorenzo Kane, that's right. And our first baseman. Oh, yes. Many of you named your dog after Haas. That's right. And then, I don't know, this is going to be a little tougher. The DH. We've got some real baseball fans over here. Kendries Morales, right? And then the indivisible, indestructible, still with the Royals catcher, Salvador Perez. Right here. So I'm asked, one of the, I'm asked that question out on the dance floor, and it's like I need to just twist off the lids. I need to peel that back. I need to actually sit with this question from a well-intended friend who really wants to know why I'm here. What are your intentions with my friend is really what his question is. And if I peel it back, I'm like... Well, I don't know. It sounded kind of like fun. So that, I think that's why I'm here. Well, no, maybe I'm here because I've always wanted to spend time in Iowa in August. It's like maybe, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm here. Or, you know what? It, um, it sounded like a cool story to tell my friends that a girl from up north has wanted me to go to a wedding with her. Or maybe now that I'm in my mid-20s and still single, there's something where I was feeling a little bit um, maybe desperate to the end of it is I think I said yes because I feel 
lonely, alone. See how questions like that, when we sit with them, they bring us to an indivisible, almost core need or core desire. And Jesus, when he asked 307 questions as recorded in the Gospels, he asked some zingers like that, like that. Last week, we looked at the question where he asked his disciples and we sat with it, what do you want? And he's really in that moment, he's soliciting desire at its very core. And it had some surface level answers, if you recall, if you were with us, the disciples like, well, we just want to know where you're staying. Well, no, I think it's a little bit more than that. We have this deep, um, this deep hunger and thirst for more about what life is about. You take the babushka doll, you go all the way down and you get to this core place. And that was my hope for so many of us that we would sit with the question, what are you looking for or what do you want or what are you going after? And, and we said, hey, put this on your, your windshield, put this in your mirror, put this on your fridge, put this in your wallet. And as you listen to your life, as one author would say, as you take note of the things that you're most going after, like write it down and keep writing it down and keep writing it down. It's been really fun to hear from uh, those of you who are like doing this and sitting with this question of Jesus that still stands today, which is, what are you going after? What are you looking for? What do you want? After the 11 o'clock service, there was uh, somebody came up to me and said, hey, I found this on the floor. It's from a nine-year-old. Her name is Caitlin Keeney, and with her parents and her permission, here's what she wrote to the question, what are you looking for? She said, a baby brother <laughs> or nephew. Like she literally, she's like, maybe, maybe baby brother's too much. How about just nephew that can come and go uh, quite often? Here's, I just want you to see it in her handwriting. There it is, right? A baby brother or a nephew. And I just wonder for, as, as we listen to our lives and we think about it, it's like, what am I going after? What am I looking for? What are those things that I'm pursuing, giving so much energy and time for, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a promotion, whether it's a sell of, of a business, whether, like we said, it's just a clean house. It's just keeping all the, the family together. What at its core do I want? And when Jesus asks that question, he's really coming and soliciting desire. He wants to take us down the babushka nesting doll track to what is at the core of this thing, because at the core, desire is good. I want you to hear that. Desire is good. God placed in you and me this hunger for things. And when rightly pursued, it leads to blessing and it leads to life. I want us to look, grab your your West Side apps, grab your old school Bibles, whatever you might have, or we'll have it here on the screens. Genesis chapter two, we're gonna look at God's amazing and beautiful and perfect design and how he installed some desires in us right out of the gate. Let's jump at verse nine. God has um, formed humans from dust and the ground. He breathed, uh, breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. He placed us in a garden in the east called Eden. And then it says, verse nine, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So as we talk about, we're gonna look at three core desires. And the first one we see here is that it was pleasing to the eye. And so core desire number one, we could just call God put in you and me appetite. This hunger, this thirst for more for experience. This is a good thing in its very core. Now we're gonna see a second one. Let's jump to verse 15. The Lord God 
took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God gave us and distilled in us a deep sense of purpose. This sense of like, life has to have meaning and part of that meaning is I have to put my hand to the plow of something and I've gotta be going after something. And so core desire number two, we'll just call ambition. Sometimes that word gets used incorrectly or uh, not incorrectly. Sometimes that word is always used pejoratively, like it's always negative. But no, like God gave us this core desire and need for us to go after things, build things, grow things. And that when rightly pursued is good. Let's look at the third one. God calls everything that he creates good, good, very good. He had one not good and it's right here in verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. So he brings along Eve, and then I don't have a slide for you on this, but it concludes by saying that Adam and his wife, verse 25, were both naked and they felt no shame. And that, man, we could go down that rabbit trail a long time, but to be literally one flesh, as the scripture says, isn't just they were physically naked, though they were, but they were also emotionally naked. They were intellectually naked. They were spiritually naked. In other words, they stood before one another in full and frail, frail and beautiful vulnerability. And they were unafraid and they were without shame. There is a beauty in the sense of relationship. So as we look at the core desire that God is putting in you and in me from the very beginning, it's companionship, it's intimacy, it's a sense of belonging. In keeping with the A's, to stand before one another fully approved. This is what God has put in us. Now, there are some religions, Eastern religions, namely, that would say the goal in life is to rid yourself of all desire. Not so. Jesus came and wanted to solicit out of you desire. We'll look at another one next week. Last week, it's like, what are you going after? What do you want? He wants to bring those things to the surface. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that there's Genesis 1 and 2, the beautiful design of God, but there's something that comes right after Genesis 1 and 2, and what is that? Genesis 3, if you're doing the math. And Genesis 3 is the great rebellion that God said, in order to preserve true and authentic love, in order for this to not just be a closed-circuit system, you have to have freedom and choice. And so he said, you can do everything except for this one thing, eat from this tree, and if you eat from this tree, you're gonna die. So when the enemy of God the great tempter, namely Satan, comes along in the form of a serpent and begins to engage Eve, the woman, in a conversation. Guess what his tactics are going to be? What will his strategy be? He's going to go after these three core desires. Let's look. Genesis chapter 3. There's a conversation going on. We're going to jump in right at verse 4. Here's what the enemy says in response to Eve. Oh, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that uh, for for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be look at this like God. Which of the three core desires is he kind of tempting? Is he enticing? You can be like God. You can be powerful. You can have domain. This is about ambition, right? It's appealing to that sense of have more. Build, grow, right? Let's keep going. Uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, f- was good for food 
and pleasing to the eye. Now, what is he appealing to? It's pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. He's going after appetite. This looks really good, right? We should eat this. And then there's one more moment. She also gave some to her husband who has yet to appear in the story, though we know he's there. This is called conspicuous present passivity. And he was with her and he ate it. We don't know what's going on in the mind of Adam, but I would suspect he goes, "Not this isn't right. We were told not to do this, but okay. Because you, you, you said so, and so there's this approval seeking. Do you see where the core desires become core drifts, as one of my friends would put it? Core desires become core drifts, and we're tempted along these lines. Now, again, I want you to hear that actually core, core desire is really, really good. But because of the dysfunction in you and and me, down to our bones, and within all of society, we're tempted by the very same things that God originally designed and ordained as pure. And if we want to say, how can we just be pulled down into uh, a, a life that's less than what we dreamt of and what God would want for us, he's basically going to pull us in one of these three or a combination thereof. I want to ask you. Of these three core drifts, by the way, let's just head on. Is this making sense? God put in the beginning core desires. The enemy comes in and begins to tempt you around these, and they become core drifts from our best life. Make sense? Okay, so now I'm not going to ask you out loud. Oh, no, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's say all of us are going to answer one of the three, okay? So let's, this is all, we're just, all I'm going to ask you, which one is your kryptonite? Which one has the greatest pull that if you're going to go high and to the right, it'll probably be one of these three. For me, it is approval all day long. I want you to like me a lot. And I'll do a lot of things that maybe not right or I'll overstrive in order for you and I to get along and for you to think highly of me. That's my kryptonite. How many of you would want to join me? Yeah, it's approval all day long. I'm going to make even a bad choice for the sake of, you know, great, that's a lot. How many of you? No, it's ambition. It's about power. Okay, a few. By the way, these are all equal. Not, one's not better than the other. So there's, there, we're, all, we're all in this boat together. How many of you? It's appetite. I just go after the next experience, the next thing. Whether that doesn't have to be food, just to be clear. That's, I'm going at, no, I, I didn't mean that to be funny. I, I meant that to be serious. That we have this hunger for experience and we'll go after it. And so you might think about your life and my life, and we might think about the lives around us where there's been carnage or pain. And you go, gosh, if we distill down this question from Jesus, what do you want? We go all the way down to the Salvador Perez, and we say, what do I want? It's going to fall probably in one of these three buckets of all the um, painful stories of pastors you know, mega pastors falling and all that, I guarantee you it's going to fall into one of these three categories. Sam Bankman-Fried, the owner of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange platform that was just this colossal fraud. What was his kryptonite? Was I've been looking into it and researching. It wasn't appetite. The guy barely owned clothes and food and all that. Approval maybe because of his effective altruism goals and the philanthropy and everything that he wanted to do. 
But what's really coming out, he wanted to win. And essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but in his words, everything else was a facade. He wanted to win. How about a more timely one? Taylor Swift. Anybody go to the concert last weekend? All right, got a few. Anybody go, I did, but I'm not going to admit it in church. <laughs> well, let's just, let's just walk through these ambitions. For the, by the way, I mean, this is crazy. I just, I just was told a stat and, and looked it up online that, like, the U.S. economy has grown, particularly in the hospitality industry, as a result of one person's tour around the country, like 17 different locations, like incredible what the, the phenomenon this has been. And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people going in search of a experience. This, I want to be a part of something and I want, and I've heard it was awesome. But is there something behind that awesome that we're actually searching for? How about Ticketmaster? What would their core drift be. I think it's right in the name. They want to be the master and all of us in servitude through the payment. And it's just crazy the fees that they charge, right? So where would that fall? Ambition. How about for Taylor Swift herself? Well, if you, if you watch her documentary right out of the gate, she just says it point blank. Part of her learning journey and path, she says this, I became the person everyone wanted me to be. If we do not pay attention to where our core desires become actual core drifts, it can lead to some really, really painful places. Two things I want to say about this. Number one, to have core desires is not bad, but are, and they're not wrong. It's just that we settle for far less too often. We settle for far less. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, Oxford scholar, Christian apologist, he, he writes this. I think it's so profound. He says, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, all that Jesus gave us, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he or she cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are, he says, far too easily pleased. When we're chasing out core drifts, we're not getting to the core desires of what Jesus most wants to offer us. Number two, again, our desires aren't wrong. We settle for less, and if we continue to settle, we'll continue to chase, and then those desires will often become idols idols. Timothy Keller, in a great book, Timothy Keller, a renowned author, pastor, now deceased, is one of my heroes for his faithfulness in ministry for years and years and years. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And he said, basically, here's what a counterfeit God is. When even a good thing that we're pursuing becomes an ultimate thing, and you have to have it. And here's what he writes. He says this, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. 
Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to go to the babushka doll and begin working it in the infinite regress all the way down to the Salvador Perez core of what's really going on here by asking, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without it? So if we aimlessly, mindlessly allow ourselves in the brokenness and the woundedness that we all have and that we all carry to be pulled either through our appetite, our ambition, or our approval, it will lead to us settling and also worshiping someone other than Jesus. And this is why we need the second question of Jesus that we'll look at here. The second question of Jesus is Jesus in John chapter six. He's, he's just done some things. He's just fed 5,000 plus people with basically a lunch pail and he's walked on water. So he's done a few things. And now people have questions. So he enters into this conversation, particularly about the fact that he's just fed everyone all this bread that just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And it leads to this conversation about the, the Jewish leaders and those who are so entrenched in their own mindset about how things from a religious perspective were to go. This is blowing their minds, who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing. And so they enter into this discourse about how they say, well, back in our story, like we, we received manna, we received food from heaven for days upon days upon days, and God provided us the bread. And Jesus goes, I am that bread. And they're like, you can have that bread forever and for eternity. And it's like, what? Like, they're so scandalized by that. How can you be that bread? You're, you're likening yourself to God. That's blasphemy. And then he even takes on their hero, Moses. I know Moses gave you this bread. Like, and he says in a different way, but Moses is dead. He's no longer alive, right? And so what is Jesus doing? He is just like poking at all of their things that were holding up the tent of their life. And now people are really getting ticked off. It says three times that they were grumbling, that they were grumbling. And then Jesus asked this question. We'll pick it up in verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples, on hearing what? I, I gotta say there's one more thing that really made them grumble. It's when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And guess what? You're gonna have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you're gonna like follow me. They were not thinking communion in that moment. They were thinking cannibalism. Okay, so Jesus is, and guess what? There was a huge crowd following Jesus. And I think he looked back there and he goes, I gotta thin this out somehow. <laughs> because this is not some popularity movement. He's like, I wanna get people to, to salvi. That's, that's Jesus' goal. Okay, you can quote me on that. Go ahead and tweet. <laughs> I'm kidding. So they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 61 Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What, what's being offended? Well, everything they expected from a Messiah, everything within their story that's now being reinterpreted, Everything from the idea that Israel is going to be restored to power over Rome, that they're going to experience a new, uh, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey, 
that they'll no longer be considered the armpit of the Roman Empire, but that they will be esteemed. Like, I don't know, but everything is getting disrupted here in this moment, and they're taking great offense. Jack Deere put it this way, what offends the mind reveals the heart. What offends the mind reveals the heart. We've talked about this actually in probably 12 months ago. We brought this, this passage to bear, and I, I said these words like, look, Jesus was kind, but he was not nice. And this is a not nice moment in order to get to an honest place. And Jesus wanted to be and bring a sweet offense. And he wanted to do it in love because he knew that there's no way to get down to the core, core thing unless he could be disruptive along the way. And I just wanna ask you, When's the last time that you've been offended by the Jesus of the Gospels? When's the last time that Jesus has offended you? For all of our preferences and our sensibilities and our ideologies and our political opinions and, and all of the different things, our viewpoint on money, our viewpoint towards the poor, whatever it might be, our view about relationship, our view on particular issues within society, like what would it look like to allow the Jesus of the Gospels to come and bring his sweet offense to you and me. And here's why I ask. Because if we are not being regularly offended by the Jesus of the Gospels, it's likely that we are not following the real Jesus. Because if left to our own devices, our core desires will become drifts. And we'll just go by the way of whatever culture says. Or we'll just grab all that we can or we'll completely indulge ourselves in a hedonistic life. And I ask you this, does any of that work? It's awesome, I heard a younger child say no and I'm hearing a baby say no all at the same time. I meant it rhetorical, but it's way better this way. When our desires become idols and gods, then we'll go in search of giving that God a name and a face. And guess what? We still give it. We'll still call him Jesus. The Wall Street Journal, which I'll say is one of those, um, one of the, you know, that's kind of my, I have to be careful. I love reading the op-eds and I love all that, like the input. That's my thing. I know we all have things. That's my thing. And I have to be careful that I don't square up the Wall Street Journal with the Jesus of the Gospels. In the Wall Street Journal, there was an article around Easter time called Our Many Jesuses. And just said there's the liberator Jesus, there's the social justice Jesus, there's the evangelistic Jesus, there's all these kinds of Jesuses. Why? Well, because of the pluralistic, relativistic society in which we live. Christian Smith, a sociologist from Notre Dame, just says this. I want you to look at this with me. He says this. The fact that there's just so many different voices in our culture about who Jesus is says, how can you possibly know or choose who the real Jesus is? That's what he's asking. So what we're left is, you just pick whatever appeals or doesn't appeal to you, and then you call him Jesus. Do you see how dangerous that is? Do you see how destructive that can be? Do you see how divisive that can be? So what's our only hope? We have to go to the historical record, the Jesus of the Gospels, and let him bring us his sweet offense. Because he wants to do it in love. 
because he wants us to be set free from all of our imposters and all of our counterfeits. And I would just ask you to consider when you get ticked off by a bumper sticker, by a meme, by a tweet, by a, by a yard sign, by somebody that says something about a relationship. I, mean, I was uh, recently doing a training uh, with, uh, with, a, with a company and I asked them this question, what's, what's a, a moment where someone has said something to you that just stopped you in your tracks and changed the trajectory of your life? And they all gave really good business answers. But offline, one of them told me, you know, the real answer for me is when I was in college, my dad came to me and said, son, you're living two lives. Which one will it be? I said, wow, that's an awesome question. How did you respond? He goes, I, I, it ticked me off. I hated it. And that was 30 years ago. And it changed the whole trajectory of his life. We need to be offended by the one who loves, by the lover of our soul. And so what I want to ask you is to sit with the question of Jesus. Grab this card. Does this offend you? Put it on your fridge. Put it in your wallet. Put it in your purse. Put it wherever you can see it. And as you find yourself getting a little irked, getting a little upset. And actually, I want us to go just like spend a moment in the Gospels, just start in Matthew, and just say, Holy Spirit, would you offend me by the words of Jesus? And just see what offends you and write it down. And then just grapple with the Lord on that. Like, I don't like that. I wanted you to say something differently. That feels arcane. I don't know. Like, and just let it be and invite the Holy Spirit to come in and do his good and loving work. Will you do that? Will you do that this week? Do you see the value in allowing the God of love to come and bring his sweet offense to you about all the things that we're chasing about all that he wants to unearth in order to set us free. If you would, and if you're able, would you stand with me? And hopefully you grabbed the communion elements on your way in. So grab those, go ahead and start working the plastic, never easy. Very, you have to be very thimble. And... Um, you know, Paul has this, this phrase about the cross. He says, it's an offense to the Jewish people. It's foolishness to the Greeks. In other words, the whole world wouldn't understand a God who would choose to die in love for the sake of his entire creation. That even when we come to the communion to remember his body, and you can remember with me now. And we remember by his blood shed. And let's remember his sacrifice on the cross. That every time that we come to the communion elements, it should bring great comfort and great offense. What's the offense? Well, actually, you can't just in ambition make your perfect life. You can't. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And we're reminded that this isn't our boat about our ingenuity, this isn't about our own power, this isn't about our own strength. And it should bring offense that, gosh, I can't make everyone like me. 
So I need to be loved by the one who made me. And gosh, I can't just keep pursuing one indulgent appetite moment after another because God is the only one who fills me. Let us be offended. And in fact, if you would, hold your hands just, uh, just maybe at your laps or just down below. They don't have to be high. But just would you say this prayer of accepting the offense of Jesus who comes to you in love. Just say, Jesus, I invite your sweet offense today. I am open. I admit I need it. And I'm scared by the thought of it. But I choose today to receive whatever you have for me in love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, come with your sweet offense, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.